John chapter 8, a few verses from the beginning of the chapter. Jesus went out unto the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. Now the scribes and the Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery, and when they had set her in the midst, they said unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded that such should be stoned, but what sayest thou? This they said, testing him that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. So when they continued asking him, he lifted himself up and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote in the ground. And when they heard it, and there you heard it, being convicted by conscience, the words their own are in italics, they can be left out. In fact, it's better reading without them. There you heard it, being convicted by conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. Now please turn with me to Romans chapter 1 for a rather startling bit of news which is very helpful for us who deal with rebel hearts. Verse 18 of Romans 1. We've just been told that the righteousness of God is revealed from heaven. Now we are told that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Verse 18 against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, notice this word, who hold down, good English word is suppress, who hold down the truth in unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God, and you'll find out that that's a limited knowledge, that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. Here is the limited knowledge, even his eternal power and Godhead. So they are without excuse. Because when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful. Wherefore, of course, God gave them up. Now turn, if you will, to chapter 2 of Romans if you will, to chapter 2, verse 13. Not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. For when the Gentiles who have not the law do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts, the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another, in the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Now, faced as we are by the formidable task of winning uh, rebel hearts to God, it's no small comfort to discover that there is an ally in the human heart that is on the side of God. 
And uh, that I don't mean a divine spark, uh, hopefully goes without saying. Some people say there's a divine spark in everyone, and all we need to do is to fan it, and it will burst into flame. That I do not believe. But at the same time, it's reassuring to me to know that God has put something in the human heart, which is an ally I can mobilize to my side. And if that is true, then that's a great help and a great encouragement. It would be a very soul-destroying labor to know that I'm sending out something knowing that there is no responsibility. I think there's a good definition of responsibility, is responsibility. So that we're not sending out uh, news to deaf ears, but to ears that don't exist. Now that would destroy me before I start. But now God has said, oh no, oh no. Don't believe what man says about himself, but believe what God says about him. Like a doctor. A man knows he's ill, but he takes a doctor to tell him what is the name of the disease. And when we are working, I don't listen to what man says about himself. I do not listen to what I seem to assume by his behavior. I believe what God says about man, not what man says about himself. Now, I suggest to you, brethren, in the ministry that you should make a good study of the word conscience. And uh, there are not many books written on conscience. Professor Hallisby wrote a book. I, I was a little bit disappointed. It was a Thomas Cook wrote a book back in the early part of the, or the end of the 19th century, 19th century. And also, there's a book by Professor Davidson. But apart from that, there are not many books on conscience. Maybe the word ethics has taken its place in the system of study. But now I say this to you, you should study this question of conscience, not only biblically, but only partly psychologically. And what you've got to decide is this, three things about conscience. Number one, it's universality, uh, or if, no, let's begin with a better word. First of all, it's reality. Does it really exist? Because on the face of things, it looks as if it doesn't. It's reality. Secondly, it's universality. Is it in every man, woman, boy and girl? Is there something called conscience in every being with breath in his or her body? And then the third thing you want to know is the validity, the validity of conscience. Yes, there may be conscience, but is it valid? How much can you depend on conscience? Because conscience can be manipulated quite a bit, as you know. Now, you should satisfy yourself and look down at people you're not preaching to blocks of wood. When a man does begin to respond, when there's a quiver in the soul, which part of man is it that is beginning to quiver under the influence of the Holy Spirit? Now, that's worth knowing. And uh, I'll try to show you uh, what conscience is and that it is there. Now, if you will do that, you decide on the reality of conscience, the universality of conscience, and the validity or otherwise of conscience, it will give you three useful values. Number one, it will give you a theological value. Forgive me for saying this, but when I'm listening to uh, some people describing how man is dead in sin, that's an interesting question. When you say that a man is dead in sin, is he dead intrinsically, or is he dead because he is separated from God by his sin? That's an interesting question. 
Is man dead in the sense that a corpse is dead? So that if you put a lovely uh, carnation under his nose, he can't smell it. If you play beautiful Bach or Chopin, he doesn't hear it. If you put lovely uh, strawberry in his lips, he doesn't taste it. Is man dead in that sense, what I call intrinsically dead? Or is he dead because he's separated from God? Be that as it may, some people when they argue the theological state of man, seem to forget what God says about conscience. Now, I don't want to quarrel with people about saying, man is dead. I know that man is dead. Although Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 uh, doesn't actually read, we are dead in trespasses and sins, but we are dead through our trespasses and sins. Suggesting that death is, I'm separated from God. That's what makes me dead. Think about that. I don't want to argue. But even, even people give a good case for, maybe the words total inability is the best theological um, description. Whatever is the case, my Bible tells me something about man that some people ignore. That there is in man something God himself has put there. And it is called conscience. So that's a theological value. But then secondly, is what we call an apologetic value. An apologetic value. You see, some people will say that the greatest proof that there is a God is that man is so incurably religious. And some people will argue that the best proof of the existence of God is the existence of conscience. Beating the totem pole of the Indians, beating the being buried up into the neck of the Hindus, be it the throwing of babies to crocodiles, being in the flagellation parties of the Middle Ages, that there is something in man that is, is, is there, it's there. And there's an argument in favor of God. One of the proofs of the fact of, of conscience is that people, people are wanting to get rid of conscience. I said to somebody one day, if the Bible is such a poor book, they were picking it to pieces. I said, if it's such a poor book, I said, why don't you leave it alone? He said, because it doesn't leave us alone, they said. <laughs> and that is true, that there is something there, there is something there that God has put there. And this is an argument in our favor. We'll come to that in a few moments. And then, of course, there is a practical value. Practical value. Imagine a powerful transmitting station with 500,000 watts sending out overtures of love into the world. Only to discover that there's not a single receiving set in existence. No radios anywhere. And yet this lovely station is sending out words of love and promise and power. It would be awful to think I'm speaking to a man and that there's no possibility of him re with having a response ability. When he does come alive, how come, how come that during revivals, great, mighty, strong men have fallen to their seats, from their seats to the floor, and have lain sometimes for five hours in a complete coma under the power of God? And yet, when they walked around before that time happened, you felt those men, they couldn't care less. Nothing was done. Now, I'll come to that a little later. I've had some excellent proofs in my own experience, and mine is limited. That you can talk to a man and have the impression he doesn't think, doesn't feel, doesn't believe. But suddenly, you see a tremendous uh, reaction in his life. Now, 
So that's the first thing we are going to learn together. The reality of conscience, is it there? The universality of conscience, is it a fact of total human life? And thirdly, the validity of conscience. What about the conscience of the Germans who thought they were the super race and put everybody else in the gas chambers? What a convenient conscience the Germans had. And I found others with equally convenient consciences. So, so is, it, is it valid? Well, we'll ask the question a little later on. Now, here is my contribution to the subject of conscience according to the Bible. First thing I want to say is that conscience in man is a distinguishing, a distinguishing feature. Now, what do I mean by that? What I mean is that conscience sets man out from the animal, from the other living creatures in creation. It is a distinguishing feature. Now, if you would like to know this, some of the biologists are very certain when they talk about evolution that they've got a good case for the evolution of man. And let us grant this afternoon that they did have some kind of case on the biological, physical level, not the metaphysical level, for the fact that you came from monkeys. And of course I'm a step above you because I come from Wales. So I'm, I'm rather special, see. I'm, I'm slightly superior to you lot here. Now, let's suppose that the arrogant, and some of the very arrogant, and some of the downright liars... It's amazing how they conveniently ignore information. And that's what Dr. Monty White's great point is when he goes around the universities. I'm not going to contradict evolution, but let me tell you what the evolutionists have chosen to ignore. And he's making quite an impression on students. But I mean, assuming that they had a good case for the biological. There's one bit of man that gives them a real headache. And it is this spirituality, in quotes... I don't call man spiritual, but there is a spirituality about man. And that's something that they can't answer. And so you get philosophers who write articles who say, we believe in nothing but mass. We don't believe in love or emotion or aspiration or remorse or regret. We only believe in material. And, and, and that all actions are chemical actions in the body. You'd be surprised what they concocted. Here's a good definition of thought. Thought has its antecedents in molecular changes in the structure of the brain. How is that for simplicity and clarity now? Eh? You see, they're trying to turn, they don't want to acknowledge anything else that is material. And some of these are top-ranking philosophers. Now, why do they do that? Because they're aware... That in them there is something that they wish it were not there. And they've got to admit that it's, wherever they go they find it. So what they develop then is what is known as the utilitarian theory. Oh, you're going to be glad you came here. Look at all these lovely long words. I'm going to take home with you. Now, there's a utilitarian. This is the argument. That as the organism developed over the aeon of ages, and of course you've got plenty of time. Uh, the, the, have you heard them say, uh, 600... Or 
590 million years ago. Never mind about the 10 million years. It's like the costs for a, a channel, a t -t tunnel now. It, it, it's 400 or 700 million. <laughs> they just dismiss the millions. Here. And the way they say 600 million or 700 million. See? 100 million. Somebody, you've heard the old story that if monkeys were given enough time and typewriters that didn't break down, conceivably they'd all type out the works of Shakespeare. But my, they need a lot of time. Now, this is their argument, you see, that as the organism evolved, quotes, from the simpler to the complex, which is the story of evolution, there were certain experiences that gave it physical physical bracket pleasure. There were other experiences that gave it physical pain. Uh, for example, if an amoeba were to touch a little grain of acid, it would recoil because of the pain. If it engulfed the grain of a sugar, it would probably say in amoebic language, yum yum. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. But now, this is what they say. I, I'm, not, I'm not pretending. Now, this is the theory. And it's called the utilitarian theory. That as the organism evolved through the aeons, these pain, pleasure experiences eventually produced conscience. So that conscience is the end product of aeons of plain pleasure, plain pleasure syndrome. <laughs> and of course you say, now how come that the fully fledged organism is giving himself more pain? And destroying himself, the only animal that destroys himself is man. Animals don't do to themselves what man does to himself. I say, where's this amazing conscience now? If it's it made him survive for so long, it's certainly destroying him now. But be that as it may, they know that there is a distinguishing feature in man. Distinguishing it from the animal. Now a dog may run off with your Sunday joints... And you'll aim a consecrated kick at him. <laughs> but one thing is clear. You don't call him a sinner. You might call him all sorts of things. But you don't call a dog a sinner. But man, there is something about man. There's a moral accountability for the behavior of man. I see birds pecking themselves to death over, over the seeds we put out. But I don't feel like saying they need the gospel. I feel they're interesting. In fact, the Bible, here's an interesting thing. The Bible under the prophets challenged the world and said animals are truer to their instincts than men are to their consciences. And God was saying, in effect, I'm getting more out of a donkey than I get out of a man. Again and again, you read the prophets, Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah. They say the, the, the pelican and, the, and the, uh, the, what did, I forget the name of the word now, the heron, they know their time, that ox, ox, ox knoweth his master, the ass his master's crib, but my people. And God was saying, animals obey their instincts better than men obey that God-placed distinguishing feature. Now, that, I think, is very, very important. So I... I'm really paying a compliment to man. When I preach the gospel to a man, I'm paying a compliment. I was lying in hospital bed years ago, and there were men in the beds opposite to me, and we were all feeling sorry for ourselves, and I preached as much of the gospel as I could to them. And suddenly through the ward came one of the board of management, you see. So I called him over. I said, excuse me, sir. I said, we were... I want to say thank you to you for what you've done for my body in this hospital, I said. 
But what about that bit of me that is not my body, I said. Me. I said, not my arms, not my legs. Me, the man who thinks. When the hours of darkness come and the clock travels so slowly through the nights. Me. He guessed what I meant at once, you see. Oh, we should, we don't believe in forcing religion down people's throats, he said. Then, sir, I said, you are a coward. Those men over there, I said, are dying. And when I sang the other day, the Lord's my shepherd, with no breath, they joined in. An insult to preach the gospel. I said, pardon me, a compliment. The gospel pays the world a compliment. They're not cogs in the machinery of the communist bloc. And they're not accidents in the biological story. No. God has put something in man. And it distinguishes man from the rest of the creation. Because the second thing I want to say about consciousness is that it is a discerning, a discerning faculty. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, Jesus one day was encountered by the Pharisees who brought a woman. Their sense of taste was pretty grim. No wonder Jesus stooped down and wrote in the sand. Because that woman must have been brought to Jesus in a state of nakedness and nudity. And Jesus was too clean to feast his eyes on nudity. And that's my interpretation. But I believe that he did uh, look down there into the sand because of this... Now, they said, Lord, Moses said, we should stone a woman who fornicates and commits adultery. And Jesus in a moment said, right, he said, those of you with no sin, throw the first stone. Now, I love the biblical answer. And each one from the greatest to the least, which, which I assume means that there were boys and girls there. I, I don't know whether it means the greatest people to the least. I wouldn't think he'd make that distinction. But being convicted by conscience. And yet Jesus put the onus on them. If you are without sin, throw the first stone. Professor Hallamsby says there is something in man, there is something in me that sits in judgment on me and pronounces me guilty. In fact, he would put it in another way. I sit in judgment on me and I pronounce me guilty. Now, before we finish today, we will look at the fact that whereas I'm speaking like this, you say, well, Mr. Shepherd, we don't see it. We don't see it. Especially in this days of vitiated consciences and behavior. We'll come to that a little later. But there is a discerning faculty. Now, I think it's safe to say that in every man there's a, an ability to discern facts. I won't say truth. Because it's amazing how we pick and choose which truth we want to believe. But there is something called fact. Perhaps a good illustration would be, certainly it's not a good illustration, but it's the best I can think of, it's like me saying to you now, gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, I have in my hand here a coin. I'm not going to tell you what it is. It's either a 50 pence piece or a 10 pence piece, but I'm not going to tell you what it is. Uh, but I, I tell you what I will tell you. Uh, it's not a 50 pence piece. See? Yeah, I beg your pardon, it's not a ten pence piece. And immediately something in you says, in which case it's fifty, and you're right, see? It is fifty. Now, there, there's, a, there's a, a discerning faculty that discerns between facts. Very small illustration. We don't want to enlarge one in. But you go and read C.S. Lewis's book on mere Christianity. 
And it's amazing how he begins his book by saying that, if I remember correctly, this is not the exact truth, but this is the, the general truth, that in a bus somebody gets up from the seat and moves over there for a moment to talk to one. And in a moment somebody slips into his seat. And when he gets back to sit there, of course there's someone else there, you see. And the people around say, hey, that's not right, that's not right. And starting from that point, he argues the case for God. Because somebody pinches somebody's seat in the bus. Let him speak for himself. And I, I wouldn't dream of expounding C.S. Lewis. He, he, he's too good to need exposition for me. But uh, what do you mean, for example, what do people mean when they say, on principle, on principle, Oh, you can't do that. I say, well, 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 on principle. What do you mean by principle? Principio. That first rule. You heard people talk about on principle. Where do they get the word principle from? Where do you get the word principle from? What is that principle? It is a discerning, a discerning faculty. You know, the, the English word for conscience is good. But you've got to know a bit of Latin, I suppose, to understand. It's con, skior. It's knowing together with. Somebody knowing together with. That's the actual meaning of the word conscience. In Welsh, we use the word keed, we bod. Keed, we bod. Knowing together with. Now, conscience is a bilateral faculty. I've got half of it, somebody else got the other half of it. Like the teller and the manager in a bank. The bank door won't open until both keys are inserted. That's why you can't have a unilateral peace unless God gives it to you. If he doesn't speak peace to your conscience, you can't have it. Now I know that he knows. And I know that he knows that I know. <laughs> and I know that he knows that I know that he knows. How much time have you got? <laughs> now, now, this, this might sound to some simplistic explanations of deep things. But, dear friends, my Bible tells me, David, I've left an ownership mark in every living soul. All souls are mine, saith the Lord. The soul of the father, the soul of the mother, they are mine. Now, that's the sovereignty I believe in. The perfect right of the owner to do as he pleases with his own. Not any arbitrary action, but the right to do. Ah, she likes. Now, God tells me that. God tells me that. Because now, the next thing I want to say, is not only a distinguishing feature, and a discerning factor, but it is a disturbing, a disturbing factor. Now, when, when Paul was on the road to Emmaus, and the Lord Jesus, the living Lord Jesus, encountered him in a saving work, he said, Saul, it is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. For a man so self-defended, who had built up such a, a, a structure of self-justification around himself, until he was able to say concerning the righteousness in the law, blameless. What man has the right to say he's blameless? Well, Paul did. Paul did. And yet suddenly that proud, although high living man was deeply, deeply convicted. It is a disturbing faculty. There is something in man and I know that as I preach, God is going to vindicate it. Turn with me to Romans chapter 1, if you will. Now, 
I like to say, I don't want to sound as if I'm some special Bible student, but I do say it because I believe it. In the Bible, God not only means what he says, but he says what he means. That's why I don't like some of these free translations, especially living letters, which were written for, written for kids. And I, if you read only living letters, then you must be a spiritual kid to be satisfied with such a free rendering of the word of God. God not only means what he says, but he says what he means. Now I want you to notice a word with me which is very interesting. In Romans chapter 1, and please let me remind you that in Romans chapter 1 you're talking about men and women in their vilest form. In chapter 2 you'll talk about them in their most moral form. In fact, they sit in judgment upon these people who are doing these things. But listen, there's homosexuality here. There's lesbianism here. There's unspeakable, vile affections, it says here. Uncleanness to the lusts of their own hearts, to dishonor their bodies. Women burned, the men leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust one toward another. And whether society thinks that it's got a modern morality, let me say I stand by the Bible. Somebody once said the new morality is only the old immorality. And I'm sure that it's probably true. But this, we're not talking about nice, respectable commuters. But men being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, envy, murder, strife, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, insolent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection... If you met boys and girls without natural affection, we'll never write a letter saying, Dear Mum or Dear Dad. Oh no, it's Mum, Dad. Without natural affection. Terrible thing to do. That's what he's talking about. But listen how he describes their behavior. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now here's the word, who hold down the truth. Now surely it should be axiomatic this afternoon that if you're having to hold something down then it must be showing a tendency to come up. You understand? I don't have to hold lead down when I put it in water. It'll stay down because it's lead. But if I want a cork to stay under water I'm going to have to hold it down because the specific gravity of cork will make it come to the surface. Now this is what the Bible says. That the vilest men may be at at, at now, the condition they're in now, they may not think like this. But they're holding something down. Holding something down. Let's not be deceived by people who seem to get away with it. Get away with it. They appear to get away with it. But says God, they're without excuse. What about the poor people in Africa who never heard about Jesus? They're without excuse. Without excuse. And God goes on to say in chapter 2 about some people who didn't even have the law. And I, I assume it doesn't only mean the Gentiles here. But listen to what Paul says in chapter 2. When the Gentiles who have not the law, which I assume means the Ten Commandments, when they have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law, are a law unto themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience... Also bearing witness. Ladies and gentlemen, if I say no more than this, 
Let's stop believing what men say about themselves and let's start believing what God says about them. God made man. He knows how he made him. Could I ask you a question? Which is the book, the best book ever written by John Bunyan? Answer quickly. Uh, pardon? I knew you'd say Pilgrim's Progress. Everybody says Pilgrim's Progress. And you're right. What was the other one? Holy War. And as Christian workers, I would advise you to read Holy War every bit as much as Pilgrim's Progress. Because man's soul is there, going to be rescued, you see. And uh, it's, it's a lovely imagery, typical Bunyan imagery. And uh, here it is. Uh, Jehovah, Shaddai, coming to deliver man's soul. Now, John Bunyan says, My Lord will be will... My Lord will be will, that is to say the personality, wanted to malign Mr. Recorder, that's his name for conscience, to death. But Mr. Recorder had some of the laws of El Shaddai hidden in his study. And my Lord could by no means come at them. Now that's John Bunyan's way of saying, deep down in the human spirit put there by God, there is an ownership mark. And it is called conscience. We'll ask in a few moments, where is conscience? Point is, we can ask it now, so far as I'm concerned, but in Proverbs 27, it says there that the spirit of the man is the candle of the Lord, searching out all things. Some people would say that a man who is not saved doesn't even have a spirit. That's a debatable point, which is not my province this afternoon. But I sometimes wonder that if you were to try to locate conscience, that might be the very best way to do it. Chapter 27, it says, verse 20, where is it? If you find it before me, tell everybody else. But it says, the spirit of man is the candle of the Lord searching out the deep things. And I have a feeling that when the Bible speaks about conscience or the spirit of man, that, the, that may be the best uh, definition of it. Whatever it is, it is a discerning faculty. Now, uh, it, a, discerning, a discerning faculty. Now, if you could only believe that, when you preach, you know when some people listen to you preaching, they laugh arrogantly. I was preaching once down outside London and there's a woman there and she was grinning up at me like a Cheshire cat. She was grinning, deliberately grinning, great big grin, you see. And it was putting me off a bit, I don't mind admitting, it put me off a little bit. Because you don't like to see people grinning up, but you don't like to see them smiling, but not grinning. And anyway, uh, she was grinning. But when I came to make the appeal that night, suddenly a woman shouted out, shouted out, I come, I come. And then a, a good Christian minister sitting next to me, David, he said, that woman is a devil worshipper devil worshipper. But as I looked at her, I said, I'm making no impression on that woman. She was grinning at me. And yet that was her defense mechanism. That was her defense mechanism. And events proved that she was 
possessed of a conscience just like anybody else. Stop believing what man says about himself. Believe what God says about himself. Now, let me just check here for a minute. This morning, I, unfortunately, I'm not good at preaching from notes, so that I am not sure that I'm leaving out, that I may be leaving out what is very important for you to have. So give me half a second here. And uh, we'll go on to see what comes from that. Now, first of all, it is a distinguishing feature, a disturbing factor, a discerning faculty. So that when we are preaching about purity and holiness and cleanliness, there are people who say, oh, that's lovely, isn't it? That's lovely. There's something in them that discerns that that is possibly what they were supposed to be. And uh, again and again... We've seen it work in people's lives. Now, conscience in man has a divine function. It says in Romans chapter 1, that which may be known of God is manifest in them. Friends, when God says that it is manifest in them, that is what God means. It doesn't mean say manifest to them, but it is manifest in them. For God has showed it unto them. Now, what God has showed by conscience are the limited truths of his eternal power and Godhead. That we know. The question people have asked, how much can you learn of God by natural religion? We say only two things, that God is and that he's almighty. No more. No more. You don't learn any more about his character. All the complications of religion are people approximating to his character. And some of them are terrible distortions of what God is really like. I saw pictures on the television the day of men, Muslims, cutting and with swords, with the blood streaming down their faces as they paraded through the streets in their fanaticism. Terrifying sight. Where they got that concept from of the God we know, I don't know. But uh, men will only have a limit in it. But, says the Bible, God has showed it to them. God has showed it to them. And it has a divine function. So when I go to preach the gospel, then something is going to come alive. Come alive. And again and again and again, I've seen this happen. Let me give you one or two quick illustrations. Simple one, first of all. I went one night to preach in Essex, uh, in what is called in those days a squash People don't have squashes anymore, but they were good soul-winning efforts. We had more unconverted people in a squash percent than any other system. I went to this house, this very large house in Essex, and there were lots of young people there. And one young man there, he was dishy. <laughs> was all right, I don't nothing wrong with me. But he was so handsome. Oh! And hair was beginning to be long in those days. And uh, he, he was handsome. And all the girls were drooling over him, see? See them looking? And I, 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 remember, I remember looking and saying, there's a young man who's never going to be saved because he's too popular. When our children were going to be born, I said, dear God, please don't give me raving beauties. <laughs> I didn't want them to be ugly, but oh, the tyranny. A girl, because she's pretty, she can be a slut. She gets away with murder. Just because she's pretty. What a tyranny. Forty square inches there. And she rules the roost. I said, Lord, don't, don't give me beauties, you see. I, I didn't say, Lord, give me ugly children. No, I didn't say that. And they're like me. They're not bad at all. <laughs> but, but, when I looked at this young man this night, I, I said to myself, well, there's one man, young man in this rally tonight who's not going to be converted. 
It's him because he's too popular. He's only got to nod and they, and they flop. So, but I preached the gospel that night. I preached the gospel. And when we finished preaching, I said, Now those of you who are going to receive Christ tonight, would you tell me? I'd like to pray for you. I'd like to shake you by the hand. I'd like to welcome you into the family. I'd like to show you from God's word that whereas the blood makes you safe, the word will make you sure. Let me help you, see. And who do you think was the first person to put up his hand and say, Before them all, coming to Christ, this handsome young man. Now, when I looked at him, I said, Him? Never. And when he came, he came. You see, I have stopped looking at men's arrogance. And you see a university man passing your open air with a university scarf five miles too long for him. <laughs> and, he, and, he, and he passes down, you see. And, and you see his shoulders going up in derision. See. <laughs> and the people say, oh, we, we'd never win him, would we? Don't you believe it? Don't you believe it? I don't believe what he says about himself. I believe what God says about him. What God says. Now, I worked before I went to college in the sheet mills in South Wales. And I don't mind telling you that when I see the way men complain about their work today, I laugh. I used to handle 127 tons of white hot steel in eight hours. Literally with my body, I picked up 127 tons of steel in, in eight hours in white hot heat. Five minutes for our meal time. It was tough in the sheep mills. And I got saved while I was in the sheep mills. And by the grace of God, I was able to witness to every man a good confession. And I said, God, I felt God was calling me to be a missionary. I said, before I be a missionary to South America, I want to tell every man in the factory something about Jesus. And I worked my way quietly through about 300 men, one of them. And slowly but surely, I said something to everybody over a meal. Uh, if there was a break in the work, if we were walking out of the work, uh, I said a word about Jesus to them all. But there was in the sheep mills one man from Staffordshire. His name was Bill Holder. And I don't mind admitting to you, oh, I was afraid of him. Bill Holder had no friends. Bill Holder was a surly, nasty-tempered Staffordshire man, with apologies to other Staffordshire people here. But, but nobody talked to Bill. And Bill was, was built like a block. You know the tool that he used to put what we call the sheets into the furnace? Some of you wouldn't have lifted up the tool. Big Tom. Leave alone putting the stuff up into them. You had to be tough in those days, you see. Now, Bill Holder, oh, I don't mind telling you, I was afraid of Bill Holder. And I said, Lord, I'll talk to everybody except Bill Holder. <coughs> However, I felt, no, no, I can't leave. I can't leave without saying a word to Bill Holder. Well, one afternoon, I worked from 2 o'clock till 10 o'clock in grueling heat. And the foreman came to me and said, David, a man has failed to come in. Are you willing to work another shift? So it was another eight hours through the night, ten till six. It's a long stretch. I said, yes, I will do it, see. And where do you think they put me? Into the team with Bill Holder. Oh, I said, it's getting close. <laughs> see, <coughs> now, I had visions that if I told Bill anything, he'd lift up the furnace door and... <coughs> there. <laughs> It'll be Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and David. <laughs> However, <coughs> I felt, I've got to say a word. I've got to say a word to Bill. 
And the moment came, the great moment. I said, Bill, before very long, I'm leaving the sheet mills. Oh, even he didn't want that information. I said, I'd like to tell you why I'm leaving the sheet mills. Look at me. And then I told him that a few years before Jesus had come into my life, changed my life, and now I felt I couldn't be just here. I needed to tell the world. Do you know, I'll never forget it. Of all those men in the sheet mills, the only man down whose cheeks I saw the tears coursing, making white lines in the grime on his face as he stood there like a child, crying. And yet I had said, oh, Bill Holder, Bill Holder, never. But wait a minute. There was another man in that sheet mills. His name was Idris Thomas. I wouldn't tell men what Idris Thomas would leave alone you ladies. He was vile. I, I've lived it up and I've knocked around a bit. But he, he, he shocked me. Idris, Idris Thomas. Oh, he was unmitigated dirt. He would be a daily mirror reader without a doubt. Uh, but you know, do you know? I preached to him, I preached to him. But I left, I left the sheet mills saying, admitting, Oh God, I said, I've made no impression on that dirty man. I've made, I went away feeling I've made no impression on him. And I really believed it. Seventeen years later, I was preaching the gospel in Northern Ireland, when there came an urgent message to me saying, David, come home at once, Idris Thomas is calling for you. Now, I, I couldn't get back in those days. It, it wasn't quite so easy in those days to get back home quickly. But what had transpired was this. He was very, very ill. In fact, he died. Later. Whether he knew he was dying, I don't know. But he started crying out. I want David Shepherd. I want David Shepherd. And his wife said, Darling, why do you want David Shepherd? Because he knows God and I don't. I want David Shepherd. Well, I couldn't get there. But in the meantime, a Christian friend of mine had come to work in the sheep mills, knew him and had come to visit him. And he heard him calling for me. He said, it's not David Shepherd you want, it's Jesus Christ. And I can tell you about him. And he led him to the Lord. And you know, the vicar wouldn't let me take part in the service, because he knew I'd preach. But he did allow me to pray in the ceremony. <laughs> I said, Lord, excuse me today, please. <coughs> because... I knew if I talked about Idris being in heaven, the, the work would say, what, Idris Thomas in heaven? Gah. These preachers, they'll say anything once they're gone. No. I told him the story of how he got saved. See. But I went away saying, that man? Never, never. Oh, time would fail us to tell. Think of John Newton inventing dirty words to shock his fellow sailors. Fancy him being the slave of a slave woman. Did you know? Some of you know this. He was the slave of a slave. And listen how sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ear. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. And save a wretch. See that vile man? Coming to glorify God. And when you look at him, you say, Him? <laughs> you see, the last thing I want to say about conscience is this. Conscience is a distinguishing feature. When I preach the gospel to a man, I pay him a compliment. He's not worthless. Not worthless. That's a good thing to say to people. Say to the people you're talking to. Say, man, I'm paying you a compliment. 
I'm dealing with you as someone specially created by God. The crown of God's creation. You're in a mess, we know that. You're anything but what God intended you to be. But I want to speak to you. The lowest, the vilest man. I've never insulted them. I've never treated my congregations as stock in trade for, a, for an evangelist. Where there goes a man. There goes a man. This is a, it's a, it's a distinguishing feature. But it also it is a discerning faculty. You start preaching the law. And preach the word of God. And other things which we'll mention in a moment. And suddenly you'll find men beginning to weaken. Something goes down in the human heart. Crushed by the tempter. Feelings lie buried that grace can restore. Again I don't mean a, a divine spark. But touched by a loving hand. Wakened by kindness. Cords that were broken with vibrate one more. Oh, you say, Mr. Shepherd, are you talking to us about muggers? Yes, I'm talking about muggers. I don't care what they look like. Let me give you quickly. I was, as some of you heard me say this. I was traveling back from York to Wales one night and I was so tired. I'd been going on non-stop 10, 11, 12 meetings a day. Our crusades used to be 17 day crusades. Three weekends, morning till night. Oh, how we worked. And I was going back from York to Swansea through the mid-Wales line. And I, oh, I was longing to get down to the bottom of the train. In those days, they were not, they were corridor trains, but not these open trains. They were compartments, and you shut the door, and you could be there on your own. And I remember this, and I'd never forget it. I said, oh, I said, I can't wait to get to the compartment and stretch out if nobody else comes in. And I would sleep all the way to Swansea. We hadn't got farther than Leeds when there was an almighty commotion in the corridor. And into the compartment, they cascaded. Five big mountains of men with beers. See, I was lying there pretending to sleep, but with half open eye, I could see what was coming in. My, when they went down on the seat, I went up. <laughs> I, I, I'm not exaggerating. They were big. And great big bottles, you see. And I heard one of them say, Who is he then? That was me. Who is me? I didn't enlighten him. <laughs> but <coughs> I soon discovered that there were sailors going down to Milford Haven. Not only to Swansea with me, but all the way. I said, Lord, I've got them all night. But maybe I'll still be able to sleep, see. But as I tried to doze there on this language, I thought, David, just you preach to these. You're down the bottom of the train. Nobody saw you getting on. And nobody see you getting off. <laughs> I visualized uh, the headlines in the newspaper next day. Evangelist body found in a tunnel. <laughs> that, that, is, that is how I felt. Through the night. Through the night, see. However, I felt, no, no, they've got souls, they've got souls. And I started, see. As God is my witness, believe it or not, those men listened to me all through the night. They couldn't... Have no, one of the big ones, and I, and I, I know this sounds like an anecdote, what I'm going to say next. I know it sounds like an anecdote, but this is what he said. My mother used to talk like that. Now, the generation's gone when children will say that now. My mother taught me to pray. <laughs> what a laugh, see. And you know what? I was amazed. When I came in, I said, murderous, muggers. I was on the BBC one day, and uh, Nicky Cruz and I were sharing the program. 
Nicky was the other side of the mic. I said, Nicky, I said, I'm glad God saved you, boy. You look bad enough now. What you were like before, I don't know. Please, God. You, you've read the story? Come now, what would David Wilson feel like when he looked at Nicky Cruz? Him converted? No. Hallelujah. She's got a divine function. God has showed it unto them. Later on, we'll be talking about the authority of the evangelist. This will come a little bit more into the picture. But the last thing we've got to say, to be honest, about conscience, it is a dormant force. It is a dormant force. Facts demand that kind of honesty. Do you know what I was told two days ago? Uh, a friend who comes to the church with me, his uncle drew up in his car at the lights. There was another car in front of him and there was a car behind him. And when they'd been there for a few seconds, two fellows got out of the car in front, came back with a baseball bat and smashed the windscreen into the face of my, my friend's uncle, went to the next car behind, smashed the windscreen into his face, then got into their car and when the lights changed, they drove off. Say, conscience, Mr. Shepherd. I agree, I agree. Think of two fellows walking the road in, in, in uh, Glasgow. And a 14-year-old was coming down. And one of these young men said to him, Do you know where the Glasgow Infirmary is? Which is hospital in, in Scotland. Do you know where the Glasgow Infirmary is? He said, yes. Yeah. Then away you go and get there, he said. And open his face up with a knife. And his friend said to him, What did you want to do that for? And he plunged the knife into his friend's lungs. Conscience, Mr. Shepherd? Yes, yes. The vilest of men are without excuse, says my Bible. For God has put something there and there, sure as you love. You start preaching about sin, about God, and especially about the cross of Christ. I don't know why it is. I've had meetings where there have been rowdies in there. And I'm tempted, sorely tempted to go down and pick the leader out and deal with him. I've got to confess that. But I found a better remedy. I preached a dying saviour on a cross. And you'd be surprised how the vilest people have been subdued. Subdued in the presence of a dying God. But when you look at them, you say, never. Now don't you all feel like, come now, don't you all feel like that? When you look at some people, you've got a father... You live there in the house all day. And the corner is full of the, of the empty cans of lager. And the blaring television. And pokes fun at you going upstairs to have a quiet time. Say, my dad will never be saved. Don't you believe it? Don't you believe it? When I was preaching in Mansfield, lots of people came forward to be saved. There was one man a little older than the other. So I said to the workers, leave him to me. I said, I'll counsel him. Mind you, I wasn't as older then. I'm going back, say... Twenty years, I think. So I was in my my calculator stuck. <laughs> but uh, uh, I said, I'll talk to him. I'll never forget what he said to me. Mr. Shepherd, he said, Mr. Shepherd, no need for you to counsel me, he said. I know why I've come, he said. I've lived with it for 23 years. And he pointed to his beaming wife there. He said, I've lived with it for 23 years, he said. Now that woman had the right to say... For 23 years, my husband will never come. 
She had the right to say, my husband is not impressed. She had the right to say, I must be a failure or my husband will be convicted. And yet all the time, his conscience was telling him, your wife is right and you are wrong. A discerning faculty. Now, we are not saying people fall down on their knees and say, ooh, you're the greatest thing that ever hit Britain. No, they say, you, you see, you see what they do, don't they? Yes, yeah. we don't mind, we don't mind, we know. And sometimes that's their defense mechanism. Preach the word. And uh, preach the cross. It's amazing how the, the goodness of God leads people to repentance. When they see how lovely God is and how bad they are. Preach holiness. Preach holiness. That is what hit Nicky Cruz. What hit Nicky Cruz, not what that there was going to be a hell to which he was going, but that he could be clean. When Wilkerson spoke about the Holy Spirit, and in Welsh she's called her a spirit gland, the clean spirit. And when Nicky Cruz heard about being clean, oh, it made him long for something he didn't have. Go back, ladies and gentlemen, and in the most hopeless case, keep witnessing, keep witnessing. Keep telling them about the Lord. Keep seeking to win them. And when, when they say, I don't believe that, right, that's what you say. But I know that you do. And I'm sure you'll find great help. But then, it's a dormant force. But this, you heard me say a little earlier today, sometimes when revivals break out, strong men are floored. During the Welsh revival, strong men fell down. They couldn't, they couldn't wake them. You're in an agony of soul. I had an uncle, terrible man, dirty mouth, dirty hands, a policeman. When he saw the chapel with lights on until two in the morning, day after day, week after week, he said to me, what are those fools doing up there? He said, I'm finishing early tomorrow, he said. I'll be up to sort them out. So when he finished early the next morning, up he went to sort them out in the revival. And he opened the main door of the chapel, which is only about half a mile from my home. And then he went in and opened the main doors into the actual building. Next moment he was flat on his back. Oh, he said, God is here. God is here. He was never the same again. I had an uncle. When he went down to the mines and the workmen saw him coming, they used to say to him, step back boys, here he comes. David Thomas, I'm named after him, I hope not for the same reason. But he was a, he was a terrible man, fighter. And a drunkard, a drunkard. And uh, people were afraid to meet him. And uh, whenever he came down, they said, step back boy, here he comes, here he comes. Let him pass. But one Monday morning, as he came down, the men in the mine said, look out boys, here he comes, here he comes, the bully. But when my uncle got abreast of them, he said, in the most beatific way, good morning boys, they all looked. The, la the lion had become a lamb. Overnight. Whoa! Did he live for Jesus after that? Do they told me that when my uncle got down to pray, the church shook. My, they had a picture in the house in those days. There were canvas pictures, but no frame, no glass, just the canvas picture, you see. It was, it was the style. 
And he had a, in the house the last supper with Jesus and the twelve with Judas there with a pocket of money. See. And David, Uncle David had been in a meeting one night and he had heard such wonderful things about Jesus. He came back to the house. He went up to the picture and he put his fist through Judas. <laughs> and he said to him, there's one for you for betraying the noble boy. <laughs> in Welsh it sounds better. Then I Oh, he was on fire for God's sake. But if you'd looked at him, say, David Thomas! Never. <laughs> a dormant force, a dormant force. And the Holy Spirit taking truth. And of course, the presence of God, the presence of God. Oh, I've, I've pleaded for years. If I feel the presence of God comes into a meeting, sinners are never the same again. <coughs> They're never the same again. I don't care. Women have gone out and said, ah, I didn't get converted tonight, but I know where I stand. I, I know where I stand. I can never be the same again. And yet, they worldlings, uh, wife swapping, husband sharing, throwing keys on the table to decide who they're going to sleep with that night. And yet they get saved.